0: Welcome everybody to this very special Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport Magazine. I'm Nick Trott, I'm the editor of Motorsport, and today I'm joined by features editor Simon Aaron and an online content assistant, Jack Phillips. And today we welcome Emerson Fittipaldi, one of the very greats of global motorsport. Emerson became the youngest Formula One world champion in 1972 in only his second season in F1 and followed that with success two years later in 1974. Emerson won IndyCar racing in the USA in the 80s and 90s, winning the championship in 1989, and the Indy 500 race twice. And as recently as 2014, uh, Emerson, you raced in a round of the FIA World Endurance Championship um, in your home country, I believe. Um, and this year, Emerson has revealed, revealed the Fittipaldi EF7, a supercar to take on Ferrari and Porsche. Emerson, it's an absolute pleasure to host you here at the Royal Automobile Club. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, Nick, thank you very much. Thank you. It's uh, it's, it's a fantastic uh, moment for my life. I always see that it doesn't matter how old you are, you always have a new challenge in life. And I always had the dream to build a GT car since I left Brazil. First was to be a Grand Prix driver and then to build a, a GT car. Took a long time to r- to come to second dream. Uh, but I started five years ago testing all the GT racing cars. I test the Austin Martin, the Lamborghini, I race the Porsche four races, the Porsche GT3. Um, I test the Corvette. I I race uh, the Ferrari 458 because I want to absorb to get all the, the best ingredients from the cars. Um, I found a need to myself and to people all over the world we call ladies and gentlemen's driver's car and that's the the, the region of the, the, the project I have now and it took me you know a long time to to put on my mind the concept of the car.
0: And the concept's intriguing isn't it because it has a life in the digital world before it has, before it's had a life in the analog world. So can you tell me about the relationship with Gran Turismo and how this came about as well?
1: Well, it's it's a long story, but I try to make short. I went to Germany to Hans Werner Ausfred, who is the founder of IMG and now has HWA, who is the race division for Mercedes on DTM. And uh, all the Mercedes GT3 cars are built there. And I'm, I'm very I had a very long relationship with Hans I said I want you to consult to build the car He say Emerson come back a month and I was surprised say I can build the car here I said but so the Mercedes say I can build the car here Emerson come back we can make it a project I said that's very good news and he showed me all the I mean they have an incredible facility in Stuttgart next to IMG yeah. and then I say with all the respect I have for the for the Mercedes, for the German cars, I like Italian design, <laughs> and uh, and he made his start love. He said you're going to spend a lot of money, you know. You should not. We have a good design here, but anyway, I took one of his director, I uh, Stefan Pateschneider, to Pinifarina, and they love it. Mm. I mean, pininfarina has so much history. It's eight seven years old. Um, Paulo pininfarina say I can design. Your car, because uh, Marchioni from from Fiat just split mm-hmm. from Pinifarina to to have their own styling Ferrari studio at Maranello, and then arrived the right time in the right place. Uh, the Germans like the idea, and Pinifarina uh, loved to design after is after the design the last uh, Ferrari is the first non Ferrari car, yeah. the design. And they have this very good relationship with um, PlayStation, yeah. with Gran Turismo, because the, the f 7 is really Gran Turismo car. Yeah. And then the, when the Japanese saw the car, they say, well, it's going to be in October PlayStation. And I was very happy with this combination. I mean, I, I called the, the dream team. For me, it's a dream team together.
0: Yeah, the German engineering, the Italian styling, and and your input as well. So I was looking through some of the statistics of the the car, um, and and you mentioned that hopefully it'll be testing later on this year. Um, So we have a V8, a naturally aspirated V8, and is it any coincidence that this car has a naturally aspirated high-revving V8 when so many of your successes in Formula (laughs) 1 is with a DFV engine?
1: Well, enough all the the, the supercars that i test most of them are turbo and the turbo is a fantastic engine i like the turbo but the turbo it can surprise you on a, on a corner because the you know when the turbo comes in it really put a lot of power and uh, then you can start slipping the wheel and uh, you lose the sideways grip yep. and uh, for some gentleman drivers who doesn't know how to drive properly I think the normal aspirated is much more fun because the normal aspirated car you drive the throttle and the steering wheel together you compensate you know through a long corner you can touch the throttle and drive the car make the drift mm-hmm. uh, perfect and it's much more fun and normal aspirated I think is uh, for me is a dream to have a normal aspirated one many race of V8 normal aspirated
2: do, do you still I get the impression that you still enjoy performance driving as much now as you did when you first came over to Europe in the late 60s.
1: You know, uh, Simon, good question. Yes, I enjoy every second driving a car uh, more as a gentleman driver of the age I have now. And that's the reason why I want to make a very forgiving, very easy car to drive. Um, my next dream is to race the car 12 hours Sebring or 24 hours of Daytona in America with my two grandchildren. Wow. Because Pietro is 21. He's uh, doing very well this year in World Series. He's leading the championship. And I have another grandchild called Enzo, who is racing in Italy for the Ferrari Academy Formula 4. You know, in two years he'll be 17. I hope in two years he'll get the car to race. I told the kids, I say, you, the 12 hours, I drive half an hour, you guys drive 11 and a half.
2: <laughs> but it, it's, it's not, I mean, you, you need to do Le Mans, surely. I mean, you've, you've won the Formula One World Championship, you've won the Indy 500. Surely you've got to go for a class win at Le Mans.
1: No, Le Mans, I, I, Le Mans is too expensive, too complicated. You can <laughs> just go for one hour. <laughs> We need a huge sponsor. <laughs> We we'll the We look for more simple races, uh, but uh, Sebring and Daytona is a classic in America. Easy, much more easy to go. I mean, Le Mans would be another big dream. about <laughs> uh, uh, too big for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned the gentleman driver side of things as well, and actually... Um, th- th- that there is driver coaching available further down the line. Is this something that you've done before? It, mu- it must be incredibly brave of you to, to want to sit next to somebody who's maybe on the gentleman side of the driving experience.
1: Well, you know, f- when I, I drove the McLaren P1 GTR in Spa and then in Austin, Texas, it's a fantastic car and, and some of the owners uh, is incredible car, beautiful uh, handling, beautiful performing, but is to a very high driver's ability. And I think when when you have a more simple car to drive, you can coach and be more comfortable um, and more enjoyable, easy to drive. Um, if he's a very good driver, he can drive like the McLaren P1 and have fun. But you have to be really uh, much with much more ability to be able to enjoy the car.
0: I think that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because many modern supercars are trying to impress people with their overall speed and not necessarily about how they make you feel. And for you, it sounds like it's very important that it's how the car makes you feel inside is the, is the key.
1: I, one, of, one of the challenges I give to Hans Werner was I want the, li- the lightest GT car in the world. Because coming from Formula background, uh, every time I drove the GT cars, I feel the, the, the extra weight. Um, it changes directions, not as quick, it's not as forgiving. Um, and that, that's one of the challenges I want a very li- extremely light car. And uh, for sure racing for Colin Chapman, many years Colin was extremely um, on the limit of weight on the cars. And that's, and on on my car be, we have only maximum, I want to accept 1000 kilos, I want to be below 1000 kilos. Okay.
0: And that, presumably that means a carbon fiber chassis, carbon fiber bodywork, everything carbon fiber. Right. Okay. And a fixed seat as well. That, that saves weight, doesn't it? The yeah. Having a
1: fixed seat. It's fixed seats. We adjust the pedals, the steering wheel. Um, the carbon fiber chassis is extremely safe. I made the side of the, the carbon fiber chassis more to protect the driver's body. If uh, there is a, like a T-bone crash, someone coming. If someone spins, the other car can hit. Uh, we don't have a bar. everything is carbon fiber. With um, all the FIA safety requirements is the first T car in carbon fiber like a safety capsule for driver and passenger Is um, this innovation the car
0: how much of your time is being taken up by this project at the moment because you're an incredibly busy man, you travel around you 're still involved in racing, but how much of of your time is this, this this project taking at the moment?
1: Well, it took me a lot of time since. Five years ago, and I, I say now is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. If I don't do now, I'll never do again, <laughs> <laughs> because of my age, my experience. Um, and the last two years, I've been a lot to Stuttgart, Torino, all the time, away from the family. But you know, the family know that's important. And uh, it took me a lot of time, yes. But I called the dream team to work in Italy and Germany has been fantastic. The people very motivated to do the project. Um, they are giving all they know with a lot of um, motivation. I think it's very important to have a motivation. Like uh, one day I took a picture. There was 16 guys working around the model at Pininfarina at one time. I mean, they're all looking for every detail. Every you know, and Paolo Pinifarini is very enthusiastic about the project. Yeah. And, uh, that's, I call the dream team, and uh, I have a very good team behind.
2: That's probably more people than you had working on your Lotus when you started in Formula One, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, <so laughs>
1: well, normally three mechanics <laughs> and calling.
3: <laughs> so has this car been designed around some competition rules? Do you have a, a series in mind or? Will you just race it wherever you can, do you think?
1: Well, I we start as a gentleman driver. I, didn't, I, I was not looking to race. And then Uli Fritz, who is the CEO of HWA, in January coming to America, I, you know, I started the project in Florida. And he said, Emerson, the car is looking so good for racing. You should homologate for race. <laughs> when he say that, I say, well, why not? <laughs> But for sure, it was uh, the first I- idea was not to go to race, was just like a, not even club race, but just our own race, to take the owners to to the racetrack to have fun. But now we are I think, homologated to race the car. Yes,
0: it's very much in in your blood, isn't it, to um, to work on the engineering side as well. I think. Many, many people may not be aware that before you even came to Europe, you were actively involved in, in engineering cars. There was a twin-engine Volkswagen Beetle, is that correct? So tell us about some of... Nicky <laughs> knows <it> a <laughs> <lot. laughs> <laughs> sure, I have to know about that. I have to know about the Beetle. But maybe tell me a little bit about before you came over to Europe and maybe whether some of that time learning about how the car works and the engineering side has helped you throughout, throughout your career.
1: Well, I always, I always like the mechanical part, and when I was 16 years old, I started um, a go kart factory called Mini. That still, is still racing. You know, uh, Nelson Piquet race, Ayrton Senna, everybody drove Mini go karts. The factory I started nearly 60 years ago. Wow. Um, no, 53 years ago, my calculation. <laughs> <laughs> but and after that, I built uh, with my brother f- our own Formula V cars. Yes. I won the Brazilian championship of the go-karts. Then we are selling to clients to, because m- my father was a race journalist mm-hmm. and we know is very expensive sport. I was working, building cars, carts and the cars to sell to, uh, to other drivers and keep us racing. And then uh, we had the idea to build a, a twin engine um, <laughs> Volkswagen. We got two two engines, uh, and it was like a, a flat eight cylinder. Um, we put, we had a gearbox, a Porsche gearbox. Uh, we, we made a mid engine, but the outside it looks like a Beetle. We took mm-hmm. all fiberglass okay. body. Uh Was very fast car, but. We had a mechanical problem, but was ex- the uh, the car only weighed that time 50 f- uh, 580 kilos? Wow! Was extremely light. Yeah, uh, was fun to drive. Difficult.
2: I was going to say, with two en- two, <laughs> en- two engines, was it twice as dangerous as a standard Beetle? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was fun, and uh, and then we built a, a a prototype with Porsche engine. We call Fiti Porsche with two liter posh change we broke the lap record interlagos Did you? and then we have our formula one team you know Cooper yes. Sucre. yeah but yeah. they always like and when i left to brazil i had all this dream one day i'm going to build a gt car yeah and that's where we are now today
0: well i think that's th- that's a nice actual segue because before we started here you told me a, a wonderful story about flying into the uk in in 69 and actually had a similar feeling today maybe you can share that Share that with well, our in, listeners.
1: In, You know, when, when I flew in 69 to England the first time, I remember I was la- landing Gatwick, and there was a, was a, a, a cloudy day, and then there, w- there was a gap. There was a hole in the cloud. I saw the grass, and uh, on my mind, I said, this is the land of Jim Clark, the Graham Hill, Jack Stewart. I mean, so many good drivers, and, and England always being the, the, the heart of racing globally. When you go to, you know, every weekend in England, you have club races. I mean, there's so much enthusiasm about racing, And I had that feeling. And today, when I'm thinking, I'm going to the Royal Automobile Club of England. With so much history, so much tradition, so many, you know, car manufacturers famous. I mean, the history, Rolls Royce, Lotus, Bentley, Austin Martin, Mini, uh, Cooper, Mini Cooper. I mean, it's names that comes Jaguar, you know the Jaguar. The history is a fantastic history after the war, and they say my car is there. The Road to Move Club is a challenge. It's a startup, you know, a <laughs> small company against monsters. You know, yeah, it's it true. I mean, it's difficult to come today with a new car, you know, new manufacturer. We've, you know, including McLaren now. McLaren is always, a, mm-hmm. they did a fantastic job. Yep. You know, the new McLarens are a fantastic car. And it's a challenge for us. I mean, mm. and it's an honor for me to be here today presenting the EF7 the uh, in England, you know, where it's so much tradition, so much history. So I'm very happy, but it'll be a big challenge ahead of us.
2: Which felt like the bigger challenge Coming over in 1969 to become a professional racing driver and succeeding, or coming over today as a as a car manufacturer.
1: Uh, it's a very good question, Simon. In 1969, was a known quantity because I didn't know how I was going to compare to the European drivers. <coughs> Only raced in Brazil before. Was like, I, I don't know. How be my level of competition against, you know, the professional drivers? Uh, today, I know is calculate. I know it will be tough because all the established GT cars in the world, I mean, they are fantastic cars, and uh, to challenge is difficult. But today is a known quantity. I know that's going to be tough, I know that's going to be a challenge to build a, a really good GT car, um, because the competition is very tough. I know the risk. At that time, it was unknown quantity. It's a good, very good question.
3: Did, did Pietro have that same kind of feeling when he came over a couple of years ago, because he spent a long time in England himself? I think Pietro uh, knew that the challenge as a driver,
1: that he knew he, he could be very good. Uh, I think it's different from when I came. There was no other Brazilian driver, no other. You know, I, we, we didn't know how to compare to other people. Pietro now knows. But Pietro's biggest challenge for him is the pressure of the name. You know, it's tough on them because <laughs> when he finished second, third, the people say only finish second, third. But he's doing very well, I'm very happy, he's uh, taking the pressure. I think, you know, like uh, Damon Hill uh, did a fantastic job. It's always very difficult when you heritage historical name to go into race for the new generation. It's a tremendous pressure. Uh, Pietro, uh, I mean, I always, even I'm not watching, before the race I call him, before qualifying, before practice, anywhere in the world, because I I try to keep up, to take the pressure. And my other grandchild, Enzo, who is racing for Prema Formula 4, has another tremendous pressure for the broad and for me. It's always difficult.
0: Yeah, of course, the, the, the spotlight, of course, wasn't on you in 69, although I did find in our archive the very first time that you were uh, mentioned in Motorsport magazine. And if you don't mind, I'll read a short Good. extract from here. <laughs> I don't, I never read. <laughs> and I can promise you it's positive. <laughs> so here we go. The most important championship from a purist point of view is the National Formula 3 Series. Um, Then it goes on to say, um, a new name has suddenly appeared on the Formula 3 horizon. A 22-year-old South American named Emerson Fittipaldi arrived in England from his native Brazil early in the season, acquired a Formula Ford car and instantly got himself noticed for some very fast driving indeed. And then it goes on to say, um, and there was a race here, the gold leaf cars, and there was a—you uh, needed to pick up two championship points to win the title and a hundred-pound prize, which I'm sure was uh, made a big difference. Um, but it basically goes on to say that. Uh, the Brazilian man naturally generated a good deal of excitement among Fittipaldi's extensive entourage of fellow countrymen who are apparently reporting back to South America his every move, relayed via the newspapers to an avid public, just as Fangio's activities were from the beginning of his European career. So that's, that, that's absolutely... I didn't make that up. <laughs> that's the report from, from 1969. Um, but w- were you aware of your, how your success was getting back to Brazil and the impact that your, your successes was having back at home. Did,
1: was that awa- Were you aware of that at the time? I was, and, and the one thing that was um, was amazing when I look at the 59 here, that's fantastic to have here together with my new car. I look at the past and the future. And, yep. and um, not many people know, but uh, Ralph Furman was my mechanic. Ah. And it was his first job as a mechanic. And he, he's the, the son, the brother-in-law of Jim Russell. And uh, I remember when, when Jim Russell come to me and said, well, I have my brother-in-law. He never worked in racing, but he can help you <laughs> as a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, he did a very good job. <laughs> and uh, driving the driving, the Lotus was, again, um, was new. Uh, was exactly this, you know, the Lotus that's here today is the one that launched me as uh, the, the international image because everybody at that time watched the Formula 3 championship in England. The British Formula 3 championship was important and all the Brazilian media started saying, well, Emerson leading, Emerson is winning, can win. I think the last race was Brands Hatch and was incredible coverage for the Brazilian media because it was the first time a Brazilian driver was out of Brazil winning races on an important championship and it was fantastic to be, to be able and I spent, you know, many trips, many hotels, you know, trucks and Mallory Park um, everywhere in England, you know, with, with Ralph <laughs> <laughs> Wait,
2: was you myself was and Ralph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. W- was your father giving you good coverage in Brazil? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and my father had
1: a, um, a radio um, program and a TV program, but you know, my father was very uh, discreet that he didn't want to talk too much because being the father, I always say <laughs> the father of a driver and the mother of a miss is a problem. <laughs> but my father was very good. He was always behind. The only time he lost his balance was when I won my, my first world championship in Monza. He was broadcasting live. Can you imagine? You see the, the son winning the world championship, first time for Brazil. He was very emotional. And that I still have the record from his uh, the last five laps in Mons, is incredible to hear. And uh, he was over-reaving. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> he for sure. Um, I'm going to move on to some reader questions. Um, we've, had, we've had so many readers' questions, one of the best responses we've ever had. And actually, um, Lotus comes up inevitably. Um, and the first question from Brian Gehrig. Um, how was your relationship with with Chapman and also with Peterson? So, if you can tell us a little bit about your relationship with with those two.
1: Well, first, you know, I, I told on the lunch today. I remember when I won the British f- uh, Formula Three Championship first year, I was in England. Colin called me to have a meeting, and I I look. I w- you know, Colin was sitting on his desk. I was on the f- on the chair, and I'm looking. And I'm thinking, this is Colin Chapman. I'm talking to Colin Chapman. My legs start shaking. I was so nervous. And he said, Emerson, I want you to sign next year to drive Formula 1. I was only through Formula 4, Formula 3. And uh, was, my intuition, my instinct was controversial shock. I say, if I accept and I cannot deliver, be a problem. Or well, I take a risk to burn my career. Yeah. And then I say, b- first I say, Mr. Chapman, I'm not ready for f- Formula One. I would like to have Formula Two before. And I was expecting his answer. And then he say, Okay, Emerson, you 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 run half season next year, Formula Two, and we can start the British Grand Prix. Good. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first meeting with Colin. I never. S- I and when, you know, Jim Russell was in Snatterton, you know, driving Lotus, everybody was telling, calling, you know, what was happening. And then calling, wanted me to drive. And then the same, same month, Frank Williams flew to, he was learning how to fly. He flew to Norwich, I was living in a small house in Norwich. And uh, Frank called me, arranged a meeting, and say, Emerson, I want you to sign for me with Pierce Courage. So yes, and wow. I have both. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then he took me to De Tomaso, Italy, mm-hmm. who was making the the Tomaso Williams. I spent a day in Italy. it Was a very nice project. Everything nice. But I told the same Frank. I say, Frank, thanks, but uh, I'm not ready. And. Um, in 1970, I was, I was always a very good friend of Ronnie, Ronnie Peters. In Oh, we raced against Formula 3, Formula 2, and then Formula 1. In 1973, he joined the team. Uh, and he was one of my best friends in Formula 1. And he had that when he had his crash in '78 in Monza, was to me, to, to my family, a disaster. And by coincidence, uh, August 12, in Stockholm. is the avant premiere of Ronnie's film. I'm going there, and I'm a big part of Ronnie's uh, life. And, and Nina Peterson, uh, Ronnie's uh, daughter, because she was so small, she never knew the father well. Mm. And when, we had a, when I participate in the film, she kept asking, how was my father? I must tell me. Was I had so much fun to participate? It'd it be a, it be a, a, a good production from from Sweden. It's yeah. good. I mean, it'd be similar to, to Rush, mm-hmm. but made yeah. by by the, the Swedish team. Yeah. I'm looking forward to see the film. They have a fantastic coverage about Ronnie's wow. uh, life, and I, I'll be I'll be there in, in Stockholm. Be that fun. Sounds incredible. That yeah, it'll be fun. Fun.
0: Was the, the, the rivalry you had on track with Ronnie, um, can that be compared with the rivalry, rivalry you had with Jackie the, the year before? How, how did they compare as competitors?
1: You know, to me, uh, if, if you ask who was your, your worst enemy, most difficult driver on the racetrack, for, for sure, Jack Stewart. I mean, he was a fantastic driver. I would say Jack Stewart to carry the car on his back if the car would not perform. I mean, he's always on the limit, fantastic driver. Uh, Ronnie was a friend, a uh, very aggressive driver, um, incredible style of driving. Uh, I was having fun to have Ron on the team. We are very open for the setup, for everything. Uh, and we, I really enjoy working with Ronnie, but he was a fantastic driver. Ronnie Peterson was world champion material, and it didn't happen, but he had the capacity. You know, in the English history, it's like Stealing Moss. Yeah, Yeah. you know, Stealing Moss should be world champion, but it didn't happen. Ronnie should be world champion. I must credit James Vickers for
0: the previous question. Apologies there. Um, This is from Jackal. Um, I've read previously that you felt the Lotus 72 was the best car you'd ever driven. Is that so? And what aspects of the Lotus 72 made it, made it your favourite?
1: It's 100% correct. And, and the, the Lotus 72 was a car that I could talk to him, he talked to me. He was, he, he was part of my body and I was part of the 72. Uh, I drove for four seasons. Uh, we had a very good ninety seventy when I first raced. 71 was a very difficult year because when come the slick tires mm-hmm. increase the grip and this we start having um, what I call suspension deflection mm-hmm. and then we lost some, 71 was very difficult year for us, but the end of the season, we got the car working again and 72 was fantastic. I mean, it was the best car I ever drove from all the cars I drove on my career. Yeah. If you yeah. ask, it's still, yes, 72 was the best car.
0: And. I believe th- recently, did you have a? Have you driven the 72 a few times in? In and does it feel like you're putting on a glove? Does it? Does it still feel like that
1: when you? Uh, they took the 72, uh, I think three or four years ago, to Bahrain, before the race, yeah. and it was the first time, it was a safe track with a lot of runoff area, that I could drive fast. And I told, I told Clive, I said, Clive, can I drive fast? They say yes, <laughs> and then we start. I really was driving fast. I had to learn the track yeah. because I never raced there before. But I was enjoy. It was like my memory was going back. You know the smell, the pedal, the steering wheel. Everything was. I was back again, the proper way. And they stop the demonstration. And what happened? I, d- I didn't stop. Oh. I did another two <laughs> laps. They had you, to you red flag. The flag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is, that the, is that the only time you've been red flagged or, <laughs> or black flagged? <laughs>
1: because when you drive like in Goodwood yeah. I, you, you have the feeling to be back in the cockpit yeah. but you don't have the feeling cornering, braking feeling how the car was. It was yeah. the only time since I drove was in Bahrain uh, a few years ago I think three years ago it was a lot of fun. Wonderful.
2: Just <coughs> You mentioned 1971 I mean and you um, during that season, as well as driving the 72, you also raced the, um, the turbine car. What, I mean, you drove in two, Brands and Silverstone, the non-championship races, and then Monza in the Italian Grand Prix. How did you feel about that project? I know it didn't last for very long, but I mean, what were your feelings about it? I think it was
1: a big challenge uh, to Colin, to, to, to make a turbine Grand Prix car. I, I talked today to Clive Chapman on lunch, um the first time i watched the car running was joe miles at Hassel. they had the um, the local racetrack small racetrack using the runway for airplane runway after three laps joe miles break at the end of the street that was with colin chapman watch he doesn't stop goes through the fence <laughs> <laughs> into the cattle field he comes back white no brakes and uh, we had to order from Lockheed huge pads, huge brake discs that didn't exist at that time, because you you have to stop the car and the turbine. The turbine is always when you back off, it's still the the turbine is pushing the car forward. And then was <laughs> was um, I had the alarm on the dashboard, a red light with sensors on the pads. Uh, if the red light goes on, come in, <laughs> no brake pads, and it was a big challenge. Um, to all the cars that I race, that was the highest risk for a driver to drive the turbine on, a, on the road circuit, on the Grand Prix track.
2: And you raced it at Monza, the fastest track of them all? Yes.
1: <laughs> and the car had a huge fuel tank because that time you didn't stop. Yeah. The car was very heavy in the beginning of the race. And uh, through, the inf- through the chicane, through the Ascari corners uh, was quite slow because they the heavy fuel. But knowing Collie Chapman, he was a genius. I knew if you continue, that car would take over Grand Prix racing. It's just a question of time, engineering, uh, develop the car. And then uh, by the end of the year, because we race after Mons, we race in Hockenheim on a Formula 5000 race. And that was extremely fast in Hockenheim. It was the second really uh, challenge to us. And then I think FIA look Mm. and told Colin, no turbine cars in Formula One. But it was, uh, you know, Colin was was uh, incredible he was a genius uh, he'd found the solution to make the car very fast was getting there there was. Um,
0: did you you raced the car at Brands Hatch as well? Is is that right? Seven, Seventy one, I think. Yeah. Um, my father was there. He interviewed you. <laughs> <at> Seventy one <laughs> at Brands Hatch. Absolutely. So very very circular. <laughs> um, and, and what he said, it drew a crowd um, because it was quiet. <laughs> Usually, a racing car draws a crowd because it's noisy. But he said he's never seen anything like it. You going into paddock with this thing just whistling. Um, but he sensed
1: that there was. There was brake, <laughs> there would be brake issues <laughs> with the cars. Well, I <laughs> <laughs> there's another story. I was the end of the straight. Um, I break the end of the straight. The rear wishbone broke. The rear wheel turned. I made the 360, didn't hit anything. I stayed on the asphalt and um, the rear wheel was off. I went back to the pit very slow, <laughs> dragging the rear wheel, but the car was was unknown quantity. Uh, we didn't know how much G would have uh, the suspension. I mean, it was, uh, w- that's why I say it was a very uh, dangerous car, but was incredible. Could you could hear the engine, the, the tire noise on the corners. Instead of the engine, uh, like a road car, mm. you could hear going around the corner, you know, it was fantastic. Let's, um, let's skip forward to 1973.
0: We have a question here from Simon Wilson. I attended the 1973 Canadian Grand Prix with my dad and three brothers. I was 11 at the time. My brothers and I still have a laugh about the chaos after the pace car came out in front of Howden Ganley. Um, I'd love to hear your memories. <laughs> and do you believe you were the rightful winner?
1: Okay, thanks, Simon. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, Peter was the team manager from Lotus. And um, at that time, we didn't have electronic. Score was all, you know, visually watching and making you know, and when the, the 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 pace car come out of Hendergland, we won the race. They took me to the podium. They give me the trophy. They start commemorate. Then they said, No, 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 Emerson <laughs> won out of the podium. <laughs> I said, Come on, <laughs> that's a good question. It happened, yeah. and it was a joke because I went to the Is podium. And then they took me out. And Peter War still convinced that I won the, the, the Grand Prix. But the time score was against us. It was a confusion with the pace car. And, uh, you know, it's very disappointing for a driver it's to a commemorate, yeah. to go first place, to <laughs> the podium, receive the trophy. Then you have to give it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfair.
2: But I, mean, I think that, that race reflects more than any, perhaps, how the modern world has changed because now everything, all the information is instant. I was 12 years old at the time and I was desperately trying to find out who'd won the Canadian Grand Prix. It wasn't in any of the British papers because the time difference and no one, there were all the arguments. Nothing was in the British papers and by Tuesday no one cared. And I had to wait till Autosport and Motor News came out on Thursday to actually find out who'd won the race. It took five days to discover that. You know, it's, it's just a, it was a completely different world.
1: You know the 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 the, the news today. Everything so fast, so much more quicker than it used to be. Um, you know, it's big change, big change. You know, my 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 son is um, ten. He's racing go karts He's he's learning. You know, te- like telemetry. He looks. He's the best lap. Goes on the laptop. And you can see where he's losing, <laughs> where he, you know, how much he's gaining or losing and breaking to his teammates, to yeah. the other drivers, is amazing. I mean, they are learning now six, seven, eight years old, things that we never dreamed to have at that time. I mean, so much, everything mechanical, everything, even team manager to the driver was, you know, Colin Chapman working with me on the setup of the car. There was no any electronic information. And I, I remember many times the, the car was not correct and then I went with dinner uh, Saturday night with Colin and Colin keep asking, tell me how was turn one, turn two, turn three? And then he Colin used to put the two fingers here and listen like this, concentrate. I know what to do after you know my and uh, he went back to the garage. Next day was a new car. I mean, he was fantastic. His intuition to set up the car. And today's everything's electronic.
2: I can't believe you didn't have telemetry on your Formula Ford Merlin. It's extraordinary, <laughs> it's extraordinary. But I mean, you, you, you mentioned your youngest son, who's karting. I, I believe you you and here traveling around together in a motorhome going to going to, I mean, it must be like starting all over again, isn't it? You know, it's
1: incredible. These kids now. You go uh, for me. Going back to go kart. Yes, yeah, start from zero again. Um, different go kart from my timing. Uh, extremely competitive. Uh, many talent. I mean, these kids. Uh, my son racing São Paulo yesterday. We just got the plane. He's here today. <laughs> But you see these kids, you know, 10, 11, 9, dicing, wheel-to-wheel, sliding, four-wheel drift, <laughs> taking, breaking, touching the other, you know, it's, it's amazing how younger they are now and learning so fast. What I was learning when I was 17, 18 years old, they are learning 10 years younger than we when we started in the 70s, on the 60s race. It's amazing the difference and there's so much talent to these kids the way they they learn i mean it's amazing amazing and they're going uh yesterday he was hitting, you know in miles 65 miles you know 110 120 kilometers per hour 7 years 8 years 10 years old kids you know cool. it's amazing how it changed racing
0: yeah do do you feel looking back on the late 70s do do you feel you were a better driver in 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 the copper car that you drove in the in the late seventies than you were when you were in a car that was front running at the beginning of the seventies. How did how did your driving change, if at all?
1: I I always say in life, um, I think any sport, every new experience you are learning, you are getting better. And in motor race, every kilometer, every mile that you do on the racetrack, you are learning. As long as you have the motivation to give the hundred percent of yourself, you always can improve. And I think through uh, experience you get better, even if the age is working against you. You have a balance, and the athlete has to know when the curves start going down. You know, but. I had some of my best races. I didn't win. I was running third, fourth, and uh, I'm sure a lot of drivers have the same experience I have. People say, oh, he won the race. It was a fantastic race, but possible he had a much better race and he finished third, second, fourth, than winning.
2: You talk about age working against you as you get older, but You retired from Formula One, stayed away from racing for a couple of years, then you did the sports car race in Miami, and next thing you've got a brand new career. I mean, what? (laughs) I mean, you'd retired. Said you like to challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what what was it that that sort of, A, what was it that persuaded you to stop initially, and what was it that persuaded you, actually, that was a bad idea, I'm gonna start again?
1: In 98, uh, if you remember, was the full ground effect cars with the skirt down and the full ground effect cars to me was beyond the driver's limit. Um, Any fast corner to try to explain what happened if you take turning to the corner one mile two miles or three miles or in kilometers faster the the result of the downforce would be much more big would accept but we didn't know where was the limit and um, when you lose, you lose it. Or if the skirt on the curb is stop and you lose the, the low pressure under the car, you crash. And I, I was not enjoying anymore. Um, we, we had our best car with a half post weight, and Adrian knew it. It was his first job from Adrian on a Formula One car. Um, and we lost the sponsorship in Brazil. I was very disappointed because we had the best. A Formula One team is a good team as long as you have good people. The people makes the team. It's not the team that's going. I mean, we, and we had Peter Pita as a team manager. Keck Rosberg as my teammate. Uh, Harv who was a fantastic engineer, design. And then Adrian knew it as a junior engineering, but already come with some good <laughs> aerodynamic ideas. The car was an incredible car, and, but I lost motivation after 1980. I, I had some invitation to continue La One. I went back to Brazil and then Ralph Sanchez, uh, who organized the Miami Grand Prix, said, I want to drive the spirit of Miami. And I always, I always want to, to race again. And I went there and then Monday after the race, American Cuban go, I Pepe Romero say I have a v- very Cuban accent. Say. Emerson, I have a indie team. I want you to drive for me Indianapolis. And going back to the calling when he won with Jim Clark, I was a teenager in Brazil. It Was a very big news. Team Lotus go to Indianapolis win. And on the mid-50s, 60s, I used to, have to watch documentary films about Indianapolis from Bardal. Bill uh, Biv- Um there was a, lo- a lot of big names just before A.J. Foyt. And I watched Indianapolis, too, when I was a teenager. Actually, when I was still less than 10 years old. And then I keep asking Colin, how was the experience to race in Indianapolis, winning with Jim? And to me, it's always integ- integ- integrate. Because Colin, like people, some people hate, like the drivers. Some drivers hate Indianapolis, some drivers love it. There's no halfway where <laughs> oh, you love <laughs> you hate Indianapolis. And Jochen Rindy, the hate Indianapolis. But I always, when I had the opportunity in dinners, I keep asking Colin, how was to race Indianapolis? Bobby was Indianapolis, Bobby Dennis. He was here today too. He was with Jim Clark there. And then on the back of my mind, I said, I always want to race in Indianapolis. And um, I had the first experience and, and then I said, I'm going to do like three classic races per year from Indy. And then he turned out I did 13 <laughs> seasons, <laughs> four seasons.
0: Am I, am I right? If my notes are correct, 74, you tested a McLaren-Offenhauser? Is that right? Um, that was that's obviously a good decade before your your indie career really kicked off but why did that why did the mclaren often tests? a tests i i, I might not say that you enjoyed driving the car um, but it was fragile
1: well uh, 1974 I, I just won the the world championship at watkins Glen. they flew me to indianapolis i drove the john rutherford's winning mclaren mm. of that year um, I had a very good coaching from A.J. Foyt when arriving Jan the first time. It's very interesting. I remember I said what I have to do and what I should not do. It? And then on back of my mind, we coming from where I come, I never could do it. I say, Emerson, oh, if you lose the back end, turn the steering wheel to the inside, the car spin to the inside, don't hit the wall. But how
0: you know the reflexes the stated. reflex the opposite
1: i always correct but anyway that's one of his number one advice to me and i enjoyed the the maclaren uh was a beautiful balanced car i was getting the speed quite quick uh very smooth driving uh next year they want to race uh sponsored by texco would be the texco star race indianapolis but i refused because if you remember that years we're already going 215, 260 miles per hour average. And then um, when they hit the wall, just disintegrate the, the monocoque was a three millimeters aluminum. And uh, I said no, I'm not racing the one. Now eight, 10 years, exact 10 years later was already carbon fiber. Yeah. that actually saved my life yeah. Indianapolis yeah. in Indianapolis, Michigan Speedway. Okay. Um, we're it's gonna a lot of
0: history. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to jump around now because we questions. have so many, so many questions and you're giving some fabulous answers as well. Um, so we mentioned earlier on that wha- there were some opportunities in F1 in the early 80s and Oscar Matserath, um has mentioned that maybe there was an opportunity with Alfa Romeo and another one of our, our readers. Um, oh, no, same guy, Oscar. Oh, he's very, very, well I- very well informed, Oscar. Um, in 84, you drove a spirit heart um, what are your memories of the Spirit? Uh, did it help you choose to pursue your career in CART? And did you ever come close to driving for Alfa Romeo in Formula 1?
1: Well, it was a very, very, very good question. The day I drove the Spirit was the day that Ayrton drove the Toleman in Rio. I was with Ayrton. We okay. were having dinner together. was my back to Formula 1 and this first Formula 1 experience. It was very interesting, because the Spirit was a, uh, was a very good car to drive. Uh, it had a hard engine, uh, it was powerful, uh, but the team didn't have, I think, the, the sources to do a proper season. And I back off. It um, was already carbon fiber starting car that was much safer and I was was with Ayrton the same day when he tested the Toleman in Rio de Janeiro at the racetrack. And Alfa Romeo made the offer for me to drive, but I I didn't want to go back to Formula One that time, no.
0: No, okay. Okay, right. Um, Oh, we have so many questions here. This is is quite something. Um,
1: Here we go. I have the time. Are you sure? Rush. Okay, we don't. Uh, <laughs> don't <worry. laughs> I'm conscious that you family. flew in this morning, so uh, more
0: more coffee, I think. <laughs> I have
1: plenty of time.
0: <laughs> so Matt in South Korea, here we go. International readership, we have. Um, when you look back on your career, be it F1 or kart, which drivers stand out as a your toughest competitors, and b talents that were never in the right place at the right
1: time. Well, you know, I was so lucky that I raced against three generations. One, the one generation before mine, uh, that was, you know, like Graham Hill. Jack was nearly one generation before mine. Uh, Jack Brabham, I mean, the fantastic driver. From that generation, the toughest was Jack Stewart, for sure. Then on my generation, there was so many good drivers, I mean, Nicky Lauda, Carlos Reutemann. You know, Nigel start on my generation, just before I finish. Uh, there was, you know, James Starr, James Hunt Start too. There mm-hmm. uh, was a lot of talent.
0: All the way through to Jacques uh, Villeneuve uh, as well. In, yes, Gilles Villeneuve,
1: Mario yeah. Yeah, um, and Ma- yeah. Andretti. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, ra- I raced against the Sun. Yes. You know, in America, I raced against Jacques Villeneuve. I race against Michael Andretti, yes. you know the f- the answer family, the son. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to see, you know. There's so much talent. Um, mm. I would say, on my time in Formula One, the one that really comes out to me, because what happened to him is Nicky, because uh, you know when when he had a crash in Silvergreen. Uh, that w- this is the the toughest part of Formula One. I was in the hospital next to Nick's room. Uh, he was chance of dying he was because of his, uh, he didn't have any oxygen on the, on the blood because of the, the, he burned the, the lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it was Daniel Audeto, the team, man- team manager from Ferrari, called me and said, Emerson, hey, Come here, come here. There's someone on the phone who to talk to you. I went there and was Enzo Ferrari. Emerson, do you want to drive for me now? I mean, Nicky was there the same day and was a shock to me. And that's how tough Formula 1. And then uh, why I'm telling the story? Because we never expect Nick to come back in Monza. Two and a half months after he had the face all burned and... Had the problem, put the helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, he was an incredible driver, Niki Lauda. From my era, not saying there's no other talents, a lot of good talents, but his spirit to go back there, Monza, with all the pressure from Ferrari, after being burned the way he was burned, and then mm-hmm. perform again, and after that, winning the, the World Championship again. Amazing. To me, as, as an athlete, I have a lot of admiration for Niki. Yeah, but he, d- his experience, and go back and and win. Incredible.
0: Um, you mentioned actually earlier on with um, with Ed and Senna. Um, this is from Peter Bukovan. I hope I've got that right. What kind of setup did Ertan Senna like on his cars? What did you What did you tell during nineteen ninety four about how he was setting up his cars? And how would you describe his driving style? That's three questions. He's not allowed three, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well,
1: uh, you know, Ayrton always from go-karting, he was always outstanding. He was always driving very aggressive, taking a lot of risk. He was always driving, what I say, near over the limit. And he was demanding on himself a lot. I knew Ayrton since he started racing, go karted, and we were very good friends for many, many years. I invited him to drive in India with me. He drove my car. Uh, but he was always incredible, uh, asking much from himself every lap. He wanted to improve, he wanted to improve. He was an incredible driver. Um, and Ayrton mm. was um, second part of the question if, if I told him some setup, when they have the Grand Prix, the, the, the Detroit Grand Prix. I was there when Ayrton won the race. And then was was Indy race. I call Ayrton. I say Ayrton, how was the setup you used? <laughs> <laughs> This is true. He said, Emerson, because of the 90 degree <coughs> corners, put a lot of stiff roll bar. You break already. You, you have the back end helping to turn. And I won the race. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Did he share <laughs> his prize <laughs> money? <It's> Peter, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was from Peter. Yeah, Peter.
1: Ayrton yep. told me to set up not me <laughs> 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 for the drive. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: okay, Tony Chan asks. As I recall, you were pretty good in the rain. Do you believe that the best drivers in the rain are also the best drivers in general?
1: Well, I s- I think to drive on the rain, you have to have a very good feeling. Um, and driving in the rain is like driving in slow motion because everything happens with less grip, the movements, everything. In the car is—I don't say sluggish—is that the right exp- expression? That things are—it's like a film in slow motion driving the wet. We think it's the other way, but when you're driving on the, on the wet, I, I think at, you know. Ayrton was very fast on the wet always. Uh, I was always I, I I had many wins on the wet, but the drivers who drive on the wet has a good feeling between the car, the track, the body, what feel the limit. Um, yes, a, a very talented driver normally should be very fast on the wet.
3: Yes. Did you um? Were you good in the wet before you came to England, or was it something you... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: given the weather, it does rain in Brazil, It does, it does, but Quite hard. <laughs> it's England easier to... <laughs> you can rely on with to the to rain in England. <laughs> good question,
1: because uh, we, we learn in England racing, you know, Formula Ford, Formula 3, any racing here, there's always a good chance of be yeah. drizzling, wet, different conditions. It's true. If you get the history of any British driver, always when rain is always running fast yes compared to the other countries
2: <laughs> let's
1: bring
0: but ourselves but you have you have proper Sorry. rain
2: in brazil though, don't yeah. you? i mean the rain in brazil is much higher quality than british rain
1: brazil is center storm um and actually a, in 1974 the british grand prix it was my last grand prix win was well, sunshine and then I see a black cloud coming towards the track. And I had experience in Brazil in racing that sometimes when the black ra- cloud like that comes, is a lot of water and I look, it's, it's going to rain. I, was, I think I was running second in the race. Silverstone was yeah. very fast at that time. And then uh, the cloud got closer. I, st- I went by uh, the end of the straight, I filled my visor. Next lap I come in, I was first to come in, and Teddy Mayer, the team manager for McLaren, put the wets. I went out, big rain, 12 cars crashed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you remember. Please.
2: I do remember very well, yes, yeah. And yeah. then I was
1: so lucky, and then, um, I, I come out of the pit, I'm going flat out on the straight, very bad visibility, it was a big rainstorm, it was thunderstorm. Yeah. And then I saw the back of a car just grow, He was going first gear with slicks, trying to go back to the pits. I missed by that match. And was um, Mario Andretti driving the Viceroy Grand Prix car, the American team. I'm sure Mario never saw who went by. (laughs) And when I was racing Indy, I say Mario, do you remember Silverstone <laughs> '74, a car that nearly hit you and went like crazy? I was in top speed, on first gear, was me. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Right, Formula One today.
0: Inevitably, there are some some questions around the current state of Formula One. Obviously, we had a wonderful uh, race uh, yesterday in Baku. Andrew Ryabus. Uh, asks, what is wrong with modern F1? What should F1 change to become interesting and excited? After yesterday, I think we had a <laughs> we had a good race, but ha- what's your general assessment of Formula One today?
1: Well, uh, you know, my general view of Formula One, uh, I think still the cars, they have too much downforce. And um, when a driver's challenge, the guy ahead, if he's very close, you start losing grip in the front because the extra downforce. Mm. You start graining the tire, and then if if you are able to pass on the two three laps, yes, still the tires. But if you stay a little longer, you lose the the, the, the front grip, and then you have to back off. I think you should take some downforce from the front. Um, I think the the public should be much more communicate to the drivers, the driver should be more open face, talk to the public. I don't know how, but be easy for the public to have access. More like cars
0: or IndyCar, more like in America,
1: yeah. And because it doesn't matter, but always the public, like any sport, they like to see the driver's reaction, the motion, the athletes. they want to see. I think we are missing a little bit that in Formula One. Uh, The cars this year, I think uh, they are beautiful looking. They are more muscle, the big tires. I like that. The, they are really nice car. I, I I think we need to, possible to make a shorter race. My opinion, two hours too long. Uh, the new generation with the gaming, with yeah. everything they want, everything happen <laughs> much faster. Yeah, You should make a shorter race, my opinion, or two races two on races? the weekend. Yeah, Possible one Saturday, one Sunday, or two races Sunday, I don't know, but should be more sprint race, yeah. to be more challenged, more dynamic. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I, I think Formula One has a fantastic future. Formula One is always Formula One. It's never going to change. Sure. But I think we need to make it more modern to the new, to the new generation, you know? Yeah. I took my son last year. I was uh, steward at the German Grand Prix in Hockenheim. And between um Friday to Sunday he wanted to see all the drivers. His dream was to meet Louis Hamilton, to Nico Rosberg, to be there. No, with me. I had all the the ticket, the pass to go. He only saw three drivers the whole weekend walking the paddock that he could take a picture. I think we we're missing that. Yeah. And he was disappointed leaving Hockenheim. You know, it's 10 years old, you want to see the drivers, you want to take a picture. (laughs) Oh daddy, you know, can we see more, can I meet more drivers? I think we are
3: missing that. I think that's something WEC, WEC, which you raced in. It's got that correct. And I guess you probably felt the same when you were probably getting mobbed by fans in Brazil a couple of years ago. So F1 should follow that same model. They should do it, yes, for the future, for sure.
2: I mean, it's lovely. I mean, you're, you're talking about being on the grid at Daytona in a couple of years, but I love the f- way in the Daytona 24 hours, the whole public are allowed on the grid. For it. I mean, it's if, if you're actually wo- trying there trying to work and take pictures, you can't because you can't move. But it's fu- The access is fantastic. I think the they exaggerate. <laughs> 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 I was
1: there watching a few times. Actually, I watched when Paul Newman race when he was 82 mm. years old. I'm not going to race 82 years old. I was going to say, you've got, another ten year, you've got another 10 years no, no, no. in you yet. Yeah? Twelve years, (laughs) but I I was there. I was amazing. No, but that's the interaction between public, the race cars, the drivers. Things very important, very important. How to do that? Must create a new system. Yes, I like that. You, you are right. This interaction has to happen for the sport.
0: We, just, we saw it at Le Mans as well. The driver's parade has now become part of the drama and excitement of, of, of the weekend. Um, we have a Le Mans question from um, Mikhail Romartka. I'm sure they've given me really difficult <laughs> names because this is my first one. <laughs> Emerson, did you ever consider Le Mans? What do you think about that race?
1: Well, there's an- another question that's in 1965 the best Brazilian driver that was called Christian Heinz, that's why my nephew's called Christian, went to Indianapolis to race with Mauro Bianchi, who is the uncle grandfather of Bianchi, mm-hmm. on the Alpine. And we all, all the Brazilian, you know, racing world was watching. First time a Brazilian driver go to race in of chance of winning. And then um, just before midnight, at the, the end of Musan straight, he, he hit an uh, oil patch and uh, crashed the Alpine. The, the car blew on fires and he was killed. And uh, I was one of his biggest fans. And to me, it was a shock. Uh, and then always back of my mind, well, I'm going to race in Le Mans. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous, Le Mans. When they had the, before the chicane, it's still dangerous because of the rain, the night, different speeds of the cars. Um, I had one chance in 1988, I think, Nierpasch, Joachim near Pash was the team manager for Mercedes, Want to do like in the team. I was going to be myself, Mario, and Michael Andretti. Uh, and I, I mentally, I said, I'm going back to, I'm, I'm going to do the dream to race Le Mans. And then was exactly the same weekend as Portland. It was June, always conflicting with Portland. Um, no, it was 90 because I was already driving for Roger. I was with Penske, but I, I, I accept the race would be with the Nierpash Mercedes. But it didn't happen. Now it's too late. It didn't happen. I'm not going to race Le Mans. Go on. I
0: don't think Simon <laughs> believes you. I think Simon's… Uh, no, I don't need, he's, to, he's need to encourage you.
2: <laughs> um, Jan,
0: Jan Lammers was there. Jan Lammers was there. Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Lama's
1: races here. Yeah, yeah yes.
0: never too late. <laughs> never too late. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you very much. It's been it's been great to have you here. Thank you for your honesty in your answers. And actually, thanks for telling us about your Fittipaldi Motors as well on the EF7. It's going to be a fascinating project over the next few years, and, and we look forward to it. Thanks everyone for for listening. Um, we look forward to catching up with you next time with another Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport Magazine.
1: Thank you. Thank you.